we have what we call a leadership learning circle series in the bank. What we were starting to see was there was a lot of talk about disruption in banking. You know, fintechs emerging as serious threats to banking because they were taking one part of a, a service that a bank offers and doing it extremely well. And then we, you know, we had a speaker who came and quoted Bill Gates and said, Look, banking is going to be around. It's a, it's a necessary service, but banks may not. So that quote really stuck and was followed by, you know, we need to digitize or we're going to die. Many times women are juggling the role of mother, wife, somebody taking care of the house and pursuing a career at the same time. I found that I was a better mother and a better wife because I worked. And so that's why I chose to pursue a longer term career and, and intend on going through till, till they retire me. Hi guys, this is Malik and welcome to the Future Proof Leader podcast. Today I sat down with Ana Aboitis Delgado. She's the Chief Customer Experience Officer and Chief Digital Channels Officer for the Union Bank of the Philippines. Over the last few years, the bank has won many awards for its digital banking initiatives, such as the best digital bank in the Philippines. In this episode, Anna shares with us how she and her colleagues successfully turned their traditional brick-and-mortar bank into a digital trailblazer in the industry. As a champion of women's empowerment, she also shares with us her secret on how women can have it all. But we kick things off by talking about her first job, being a salesperson at a Banana Republic store. Enjoy. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Malik. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, you have built an impressive career over the years in the banking industry, but most people don't realize that uh, you started your career working at Banana Republic as a sales girl. Is that right? That's right. So when I graduated from college, I moved from the East Coast of the U.S. to San Francisco. And it was in 2001 when there was a tech bubble. And so it was difficult to find a job and I had to make ends meet. And so I started to work in Banana Republic as a sales girl. And so I, I worked uh, on the floor in the fitting room as a cashier. And it was uh, really quite an interesting experience for me. And I have to say that when I look back on my career and where I am today in customer experience, that experience working on the Banana Republic floor actually has shaped a lot of my thoughts about how to create a great experience. That's quite uh, fascinating. And from what I understand, you also worked at a museum. Um, and even going back a little bit in your life, uh, growing up, you wanted to actually pursue a career in arts. And that's why your degree, I think, is in the arts, history and painting. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So interestingly enough, when I applied to college, I applied to the business school and I took one accounting class and decided that that wasn't going to be for me. And simultaneously, I was taking an art history class that was fascinating. Um, and so right at that moment, I decided in my after my first semester, I decided uh, to follow my heart and, you know, pursue art as my undergrad degree. And so I graduated from college with a uh, dual degree in art history and in painting in studio arts. And I moved to San Francisco because I have family there and it was uh, better weather than where I was studying in Boston. And so it, the logical thing for me, and at that time it was of my interest, was to pursue a career in the arts. And so I walked the pavement um, while I was working in Banana Republic. At the same time, I walked the pavement, dropping resumes left and right uh, to art galleries in downtown San Francisco and got called by by one of them that was quite large at the time called John Bergruen Gallery. And they they accepted me and, and uh, I was employed there for six months, after which I decided to move to another gallery um, because I, I enjoyed the work environment and the people I was working with there more. Um, and so that's how I, I started my career. And I spent a year in San Francisco doing that. And, and uh, why did you leave that? I would say it was fate, because if you had asked me that time, I would have told you that I was dead on set to pursue a full-blown career in the arts. And 
Uh, the government of the United States had other plans for me because I did not get a working visa after that. And so I literally had to leave the country oh, okay. and I, I came back home. And it, at that point in time, the Philippine art scene was not as sophisticated or developed as it is today, whereas mm -hmm. someone could actually pursue a career in the arts in the Philippines today. But back then it wasn't as active. And so I had to kind of reset my career trajectory and, and dreams and, and, and think about, okay, well, what can I do with a, an interest in the arts and creativity and the job opportunities that were available? And I tried out a couple of different jobs. I worked in the peninsula as an intern for a while in the hotel. I also interned in uh, advertising agencies. And then I came across the opportunity to try out a product management position in Union Bank. Okay. And, you know, Malik, I was interviewed by the current CEO, Edwin, at, uh, who was the head of retail banking at the time. And our interview was all about art because Edwin is a big collector. <laughs> and so I said, hey, I think I can fit here. We get along. And then so that's how I ended up as a product manager in Union Bank, my first job in banking. Typically, if anybody sees your resume and it says a degree in arts, history and painting, they probably won't even give you a chance in banking. Right. And I don't think I have met anybody, any banker uh, who has gotten a degree in arts, history and painting. You are the first one, actually. So how was how was that experience working in bank, having that background in arts, you know? Uh, Steve Jobs once said that um, he loves working at the intersection of arts and technology. And that's why he thought the Apple products make our hearts sing because uh, he was able to bring out the best from technology, but also the best from the design aspect of it. Uh, do you find yourself working at that intersection as well? Yes, I would say today I make the connection uh, much better than I did back when I was starting out, especially now that I lead the customer experience group where design is at the heart and, and being creative and innovative is at the heart of everything that we do. When I first started out, the, the connection I had made was around being involved in marketing and the creativity that marketing uh, requires, right? So having that uh, background in design and art helped me through that. But I think the other thing that happened at that point in my career was actually I started to fall in love with the technology side of banking at the same time. Uh, when I joined the bank in 2004, we were embarking on a project to replace our core banking system. And that required a team of us to be sent to, to India to, to learn about the system and then eventually implement it. And I had no idea why they had chosen me to be on the team after only being with the bank for a few months. But I was grateful because I discovered not only that I could apply creativity in banking, but also in, in terms of using technology and leveraging technology to design products and services for clients. One of the questions I had for you was uh, when I was looking at your work history, I've done research on you, as you can tell. Uh, you did work at Citibank. And my question is, I mean, did your peers ask you, hey, you are an aboitis. Uh, why do you need a job? Why are you working at Citibank? Was that a question that was ever asked to you? Uh, it was actually at the interview. They, they asked me those questions. And I think it's important to, to talk about why I decided to join them and why I decided to leave Union Bank. And at that time, you know, it was really a, more on self-reflection and you know, having joined Union Bank, which my, my family does own a part of, I had my doubts whether, you know, being an art graduate and, and being in the bank, whether I was succeeding because of my name, right? They say child of the owner and perhaps, you know, the success was coming from that. And I knew that if I was going to build a career, I could not live with that self-doubt. I would have to, to get over it. So I made the conscious decision and, and said, I have to leave the bank. Um, hopefully to come back one day, but with no real intent of doing that. I left um, and I, I decided to apply to, because I knew the local banks probably wouldn't employ me, I decided to apply to foreign banks. And I said that I was going to go through the process all on my own, right? Not using contacts. And I did that. And Citibank gave me the interview and they asked me the question and I explained this to them. 
And uh, they, I was very lucky that they accepted me into their, their corporate banking product business. And I spent two and a half years there and learned a lot and have a deep respect for the team and, and, and the bank, the institution. You know, I know quite a few Citibank alumni, actually. You know, it seems like it has been a great learning ground or a learning platform for so many Filipinos um, who have gone on to doing amazing things beyond their Citibank years. So it seems like uh, you fall into uh, that category. And then after that, you actually went back and got your MBA. Uh, you went to NYU. Uh, and what prompted you to get your MBA? Yeah, sure. So I, I decided after about two years in, in the bank um, that I knew I wanted to stay in banking and I, I was moving up the ranks and, and I was hitting a wall with regards to technical knowledge. So I realized that if I was going to work in a bank, I would have to at least know how to read a financial statement, which I did not know how to do, given that I had done art in my undergrad. So I gave it serious thought because I was very happy working in City. I could have pursued a longer career there. Um, and I also waited against some personal decisions uh, I was thinking I would be making. For example, I said, you know, I was 28 years old at that time and I knew I wanted to get married and start a family. And if mm -hmm. I didn't leave to do my MBA at that time, I probably would not have done it. Mm -hmm. So just those that series of, you know, lines of thinking um, made me decide to go pursue my MBA, uh, get a solid foundation in business before continuing on into higher responsibility in, in an institution like Citibank or any other bank, which I happened to join Union Bank again after. But when you were uh, in the business school, you know, the, the ghost of accounting came to haunt you again, right? Because you left the accounting to join arts, history and painting in Boston College. But then when you are doing your MBA, you can't avoid taking accounting classes. Uh, so how did you fare? Uh, with those classes. Malik, that's when I realized the power of having a good teacher and mentor makes all the difference hmm. uh, because I ended up loving my accounting class with my professor. His name was Professor Godet and he was excellent. He had a way of teaching accounting that well, he, he made it practical. So we didn't learn T, T accounting. We actually built spreadsheets from the onset and built um, balance sheets and, and cash flow statements from the onset. So he made it very practical. And uh, funny enough, I ended up loving accounting more than any other class in the MBA. Oh, that's amazing. Did you ever think about staying back in the US? Because a lot of MBA graduates from uh, around the world, they go to the US, get the graduate degree, and then uh, end up looking for a job in Wall Street or one of the consulting firms. Did you ever, did that idea cross your mind or you wanted to come back and start your personal life uh, priorities that you were talking about earlier? So I did uh, interview in New York. I interviewed in Citibank, New York, uh, and I was offered a position there. But at the, in, after my first year in, in the MBA, uh, my now husband proposed to me. And so we got engaged and I could not ask for one more year out there. And so I decided to forgo the opportunity in New York, knowing also that I really was going to build, you know, a longer term um, and well, build my life actually in of the course, Philippines. Yeah. So that brought you back to the Philippines and you rejoined Union Bank uh, in what capacity? So I rejoined Union Bank as an AVP in a group called Segment Management. So it was a group that was tasked to understand different industries and, and really look at from things from a consumer standpoint and bring back those insights into the bank so that we could develop solutions and products and services that were tailor fit for those particular industries. Did you ever think that, hey, um, my family owns majority of this bank, uh, I carry that name, that I should go directly into the C-suite or they should put me on the board of the company? Because I have seen that with other family businesses. So it seems like Aboitis family works differently. Tell us about how does that work out for the family members? Sure. So ne never did I think that. Uh, we have a very strong, I guess, uh, system of meritocracy in, in mm. the family. And we believe that everybody needs to start from the ground up. If you are starting from a young age now, if you chose to pursue a career outside and work your way up there, then you could come in in a 
a commensurate position, right, um, in, in the organization. But definitely meritocracy is at the heart of the way we manage family members entering the business. Uh, and we think that it's not just because that's what's uh, the right thing to do for family, but also for the business, actually more so for the business, right? Um, it's important that you have leaders who are competent, whether they're family or not. Um, and so we, we really believe in that. It seems like... Um you know, you have done well for yourself. Um, and when I look at your two titles now, I'm quite jealous. If I were to start my career all over again, I would love to be in your shoes because I think the two places where companies can really differentiate themselves, uh, where they can be the disruptor in the marketplace are how you're managing your customer experience and how you are optimizing your digital channel. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what does your job and compass and then we'll go a little bit more into detail later about the entire digital transformation journey that union bank has done it so successfully you hit the nail on the head uh we we think of customer experience as our competitive advantage and that's actually what was at the heart of our digital transformation um effort and roadmap right it was to transform not just for transformation's sake but rather to be able to sustainably design and launch customer experiences that we can modify and innovate on over time as our customers' needs and the market's needs also change. And so in my customer or CXO, Chief Customer Experience Officer um, mandate, uh, my job is to look at all of the experiences we deliver to the customers and make sure that they are uh, the best we we can offer, and certainly you know, commensurate with the institutions that we benchmark ourselves against. And needless to say, that those are not banks. Um, we we want to measure up to the companies that deliver the best customer experiences out there that are most relevant to our target customer base. And so that's what I look after, and uh, that's what my whole team is focused on. The digital channels role. Uh, marries well into that role because that is the, the digital channels are the, I would say, the primary interface we interact with our customers on or would like to, and we believe will be the main interface over time, right? So today we offer experiences across three different touch points. We have physical, we have digital, and we have human touch points. And we think that if you look at a a pie that shows how the interactions are distributed. Today already, most interactions are happening digitally. Um, Second would probably be physically, and then third through our relationship managers. Now, you talked about you are comparing yourselves not with other banks, and I think that's a good thing, but with other best-in-class companies globally who are providing the best customer experience. Would you mind sharing which companies are you talking about? Is it a top secret or is this something you can share with us? Okay. No, it's not a top secret uh, because we actually need our, we need it to come from our customers. We need to know who they think are the offering the best experiences and we learn from them. And so we learn from fintechs and a lot of the fintechs in Europe, for example, offer great experiences. Monzo probably being the one yeah. uh, we look at uh, most, but there are other smaller ones that we also pick and choose different things we think are good about them. From an e-commerce standpoint, we look at Amazon. We think Amazon does a fantastic job in terms of making shopping easy. And and we look at certain components of our digital experiences as shopping experiences. They also are sort of our peg when it comes to how to use data uh, to deliver relevant experiences, right? So not only do we look at these different companies for what's obvious or what's on the outside and the skins, if you will, and the, and the experience, but rather what engines drive the heart of those experiences, right? And so for us, we understand that data is at the heart of a lot of these personalized um, offers that people are getting and personalized experiences. And so that's something that we've learned from and are continuing to work on improving. When did you guys start on this digital transformation journey. When I look at the banking landscape here in the Philippines, it didn't feel like that you were under the pressure from your competitors that you had to transform or you will go extinct. Uh, To your point, you were looking at other global companies 
But was the decision to transform yourself before all of your competitors in the marketplace driven by a simple boardroom meeting or it came about after a slow and long deliberation that took place over six months? How, how did that happen? I can't recall an exact date and I don't think that there was one date that we can pinpoint that said this is the turning point. Uh, what was happening was we were we have what we call a leadership learning circle series in the bank where we invite speakers to come and talk to us about um, emerging trends in the market globally right and things that are you know threats or or you know going to be disruptive forces in the, in our industry and in others and so what we were starting to see was uh, over uh, this is about 5 or 6 years ago uh, there was a lot of talk about disruption in banking. So more and more, the speakers were talking about, you know, fintechs emerging as serious threats to banking because they were taking one part of a, a service that a bank offers and doing it extremely well, right? And they were focusing a lot of money and resources just at that. And then we, you know, we had a speaker who came and and said to us, uh, well, quoted Bill Gates and said. Look, banking is going to be around. It's a, it's a necessary service, but banks may not, right? And so that quote really stuck, and it was followed by, you know, we need to digitize or we're going to die. And so at, at the beginning, it was kind of an awareness. Um, and since all of our top management is present at these learning um, venues, we were we were getting convinced together. So the moment that our CEO and chairman of the board sort of launched it and said, look, this is not something we're just going to remain listening to, but it's actually something we need to act on and act on quickly. Everybody was sort of already on, on board. Um, and we just needed to know, okay, we understand we have a burning platform. We've got to digitize or we're going to die. Now what? How do we go about this? So that was the next step that we needed to tackle. And how long ago was this? Yeah, five or six years ago. Years. Oh, five, six years ago. Okay. Yeah. So that's when we started. And then how long before you started taking action? So you created the, the awareness through these uh, events that you organize, inviting external speakers to come and talk. What happened after that? Pretty soon after, we already started to uh, define our uh, strategy, a re renewed strategy, if you will. So Union Bank has always kind of prided itself on being an innovative bank. And it, so that was already in our culture and DNA. And so using technology and, and transforming and change was not something that was foreign or necessarily new. It's just that we would have had to do it in a much greater scale. And so we, we defined, uh, I recall it, it was called plan, um, we had a plan A, B, and C. And uh, I won't go into the details of each plan at this point unless you want me to. Um, and then, you know, about a year or two after we were introduced to Scott Anthony and this dual transformation framework where we were able to kind of refine our thinking um, and really plot what our strategy would be uh, using this dual transformation framework. And that's where we um, established that we need to have a, a two-pronged strategy. The first one being that we have to reinvent for today, and that was to create a digital bank or a bank that's digital to the core, but that we also needed to start building tomorrow um, mm -hmm. because we knew that in the long run and not too long run, we were in our minds, it was about a 10 or 15 year window. Uh, there would be tech companies and tech platforms that would be, you know, needing banking services embedded. Otherwise they would build it themselves. And so we launched UBX, uh, which is our technology company that is building platforms that have banking services embedded. And, and they're not just using Union Bank. They're actually an agnostic uh, company. So the, on their platforms, they host, let's say, loans and payment services of other institutions, right? So truly building up this sense of banking available within platforms. And this dual transformation platform or the plan makes a lot of sense because you know, a lot of the times when you look at companies, uh, most of them are focused on the incremental innovation, you know, that makes their existing products maybe, you know, five, 10% better than it was yesterday. But sometimes you have to also keep looking at the horizon and come up with completely new business model altogether. 
to survive and thrive 10 years down the road, right? So it seems like that's what uh, you were going through. I don't think we need to go into detail, but it'd be interesting for the listeners to just briefly understand what did this plan A, B, C entail? I would say the biggest difference in the approach was with plan A, we were really planning to digitize the bank, right? The bank as it was today, primarily brick and mortar um, organization into a digital bank. But we were not sure at that point in time, we were um, humble enough to accept the possibility that we might not be successful. And so we, we said, well, if, we're not, if we have a chance of not being successful, but we do believe that the bank of the future needs to be digital, then we need to have a challenger bank approach. Um, and so we need to have a team that is unhindered by the legacy systems and processes of the bank and that can start from scratch. And that, so that's when we launched um, E.ON as a digital challenger bank brand. And what happened at that point in time is we were able to, we were addressing the same market from two ends, right? So we were saying, okay, you, the main bank, you transform and Eon go unleashed and, and, and just see what, you know, you need to do and uh, try and compete with the main bank uh, in the market, right? And so eventually what we ended up happening is we actually saw that the, the main bank was able to transform quick enough. Mm -hmm. And E.ON was able to address a different need, that of the mass market. Um, and so, you know, this is the beauty of the transformation as well. We adopted Agile, uh, the Agile way of working and the Agile organizational structure. And so that allowed us to pivot and recognize that while we were starting, if E.ON was starting off one way, but it started to see opportunities and, and it gaining traction in another way, it could go ahead and, and pivot themselves, right? So the Agile methodology has allowed us that flexibility and ability to remake ourselves over and over again. And is your entire bank following the Agile way of working or just the technology team? So we started off uh, with a few uh, projects, right? And, and, and missions, if you will, that needed to be delivered uh, because we also wanted to prove to the organization that it would work. Right. It's important when you're going through a change effort that you you show small or, or big wins if they become big wins in the beginning. But you need to show kind of proof of concept that it's going to work. And so it started off with a couple of teams uh, working in Agile and uh, they, they were big projects. They are the teams that lead our Union Bank Online, so our retail platform and then our corporate platform, the portal. And right away, we saw the benefits of shifting to Agile and, and we were communicating that to the rest of the organization. And so, you know, team by team, we started to onboard them into Agile. And, and today, most of the bank works in, in Agile um, because we see great benefits from it. Um, there are certain processes that don't call for Agile, like building a bank branch. It's a, you know, the construction is not necessarily an Agile process, uh, but Certainly the experiences that, that are taking place in the bank, the bank branch and, and the services we offer are run by teams that are organized in an agile fashion. And was that uh, difficult to implement? Because that's a huge paradigm shift for employees, right? So obviously the leadership team, you guys are all bought into it. You see the need for it. You hear the mantra that either you transform yourself or you become extinct. How do you pass on that sense of urgency to your employees so they get on the same bandwagon, they get on a train with you? Did you guys, you know, encounter major resistance from your employees when you were going through this transformation? I think because our culture was already founded on the foundation of being an innovative institution, there wasn't as much resistance um, as you would, you might imagine you would get from a traditional bank. That being said, we did have our own share of challenges. And um, we also brought in talent from the outside. So some key senior leaders and definitely a lot uh, more within the project teams who did not come from banking and who, who understand the agile way of working, right? So we have, if you look at the composition of our teams today versus five years ago, we have a lot more tech talent. Um, we have a lot more data science, AI, robotics talent. So the, the composition of the teams um, has changed uh, also dramatically. 
on top of that, we gave people the opportunity to 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 tech up and to to transform themselves, right? So if they were in positions that, for example, would have been uh, redundated because uh, we were putting in place a robotic process automation that you know rendered the position just it, it wouldn't exist anymore. We said we're not going to leave anybody behind, and we would do this by helping our employees to retool into today's and the, and the future's talent uh, pool, right? And and so things like we have some branch people who became data scientists um, and people from operations who started to, to get into AI, right? Uh, because we feel that one, we had the need for people in those positions. And second, we had employees that we made a promise to that were, if they were willing to change and transform along with the organization, there would be opportunity for them. Yeah, it's a win-win for both, right? Uh, you get the talent uh, that is very scarce in the marketplace. Looking for a data scientist is very difficult nowadays. Uh, and they benefit because uh, they have the ability to continue working for Union Bank. How was it uh, that you were able to transform and reskill and upskill these employees? Uh, a lot of the training, did that happen in-house or you allowed them to sign up for courses online with the likes of Coursera or Udacity or many other online institutions. Uh, how did you go about upskilling them? So we did both. Um, we recognized uh, that we would need to uh, move our training and upskilling uh, into platforms where the content was available. So these, the, specifically the uh, platforms you mentioned are available to our employees. Uh, but we also, and then the second thing we did was we uh, hired outsiders to come in and train. And so I think one of the trainings that has been sort of cascaded across the entire organization actually is design thinking. So we got an expert in design thinking um, and had everybody go through that. Uh, I think it helped the organization and the people to also understand how to frame problems and how to keep an open mind, which is necessary in, if we're going to continue to transform ourselves. And then third, we created centers of excellence in the bank where we, we even trained outsiders. So we would take students, we take employees of other organizations and also uh, train them and upskill them there. And, and specifically, our centers of excellence are in data science, uh, blockchain, and artificial intelligence, right? And it was our way of, again, mastering it ourselves because in order to teach it, you've got to master it yourself and our way of feeding our own requirements, right? So we would get students, train them, and the, you know those that wanted to join us and that were the top of their class, we would, we would hire them. So it was, again, a win-win uh, situation. So a lot of work, it seems like, have gone into transforming the bank. I think it'd be interesting for the listeners and the viewers to hear before and after, right? So just walk us through, if I went to Union Bank branch five years ago, how would that experience be different than today? So if you walked into a Union Bank branch five years ago, you would, uh, on top of a new brand, because we, we rebranded alongside our transformation, you would uh, walk in, uh, you would fill up forms, you would take a number that was uh, on a cutout, and depending on which branch you went to, it was different, it was made of different material. And then you would sit down and uh, wait for your turn and the teller would then call out your number when it was your turn and you would go to the counter, give a piece of paper. The teller would then look at the paper, ask you for IDs, re-enter the information that you already wrote on that form, process your transaction and you walk out, right? And so today we've changed that experience because we know that people don't wanna spend time in a bank branch necessarily, right? Some do come in because they wanna to talk to a relationship manager, but by and large, if they're going in for a transaction, they want to be in and out pretty quickly. And so we re-looked at that and we, we, we went further and we said, okay, well, what are other reasons why people might want to come into a bank branch, right? And so we transformed uh, the, the entire branch banking experience and the transformation involved three levels of transformation of space. So we, we changed the layouts from a, a counter-centric experience to having zones. Right. So if you walk into a transformed branch today, you will find a zone where it's almost like a cafe. You can have coffee in it. 
Uh, there's experience zones where we have TVs and walls that you can watch different videos. Um, and in, even in some of them, we have VR experiences so you can you know, see the, what the future of banking looks like. We also hold events in these spaces. So you know, we, we've created seating um, environments and, and screens that we can have. Of course, this was all before the lockdowns, right? But um, And hopefully when things open up, we can do this again. We would host uh, different groups and individuals uh, to have events in the, in the spaces. And we change the processes as well. Uh, so we transform space, we transform process, and we transform the training of the people, right? Such that if you came in for a transaction, you would uh, either input your transaction in your mobile phone. So even from your house or your car, before you go into a branch, you can already in, uh, input your transaction. When you get into the branch, you click I'm here. If you were doing it on the iPad, you would just input it there. Your number will appear, actually, no, sorry, not your number, your name or whatever name you can, you can put Superman if you wanted, or you could put your own name. <laughs> I'm sure there were probably plenty of Supermans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Guapo, we get Guapo a lot too. <laughs> but it's, it's a playful way of also personalizing the experience. We said people don't want to be known by a number. They want to be known by something else. And so we, we allow you to put the name you want. So there's a screen that shows you when it's your turn, what counter to go to. When you get there, if you're depositing money, all you have to do is hand over the cash. The teller does not have to re-input anything because it was already, it's, it went from the app or the iPad into the system. And so she just confirms the amount, presses OK, and you get a, a confirmation on your phone or your email uh, that says that this was the transaction, it was completed, and we ask you to rate our service, right? And, and I think as a testament to the, the transformation we made, uh, we've seen our customer satisfaction scores rise consistently. And even, you know, it, it went up from, you know, three to, to four, and even up to today, we're, we're now at 4.8, right? So even in the last four months, the improvements we continue to make drive this, the CSAT scores up higher. So we're, we take that as a sign that uh, people are happy with the way we've, we've transformed. So clearly big difference between five years ago and today. What about 2030? Uh, would there be a need for branches? We believe that there will be a role for physical um, in, the, in the banking experience. And, and, and it's actually the reason why we've kept our branches around as well, right? We offer a fully digital bank experience. So if someone did not want to have to walk into a branch, they don't have to. Our app can do almost everything. Um, except perhaps deposit a check larger than 500,000 pesos, but you could do that at a machine. Uh, but we, we still see that many Filipinos are not ready to go completely digital today. And, and we think that it's going to be a process, perhaps not nine years. If you're looking into 2030, it'll probably happen. My bet would be much faster than that. Uh, but there are certain experiences we think people will want to go to a physical location for. And if you even, if you look at Apple, Apple is an extremely digital uh, company and they have stores, well, because they sell physical products, but they also allocate store space for problem solving. Mm -hmm. So you can go to the Apple bar um, if you have a problem with your phone or an app and somebody's there happy to help you. So there's something about that face-to-face -face interaction and physical interaction that I think people will still want um, over time. And so that's why we designed the space to be flexible so that as we see the role of the space changing over time, we can adjust. Our, our space is flexible enough for us to adjust to it. Um, but we certainly believe that the footprint of the branch network is probably going to be quite a bit smaller uh, in the next nine years. And we think that there will probably be different types of physical locations, right? Not necessarily a full branch, but perhaps smaller kiosks here and there uh, where someone can drop by and, and, and talk to someone if they need help with something. I want to switch gears, Anna, and uh, talk about another topic that is um, that you are very passionate about, and that's uh, women's empowerment. I came across a YouTube video, which was the corporate AVP for the Aboitis family. And uh, towards the end of this three-minute video, uh, there were a couple of group pictures that showed all the family members who are involved with the family business. And what I found it 
so fascinating is that you are the only woman within this uh, photograph representing some 25 people. The question I have for you is, are you a trendsetter within the family um, where you are making the case for women to pursue their professional goals? Uh, tell me about that. Sure. So I think I don't look at myself as a trendsetter necessarily. Um, and there are a lot of women in the family that have their own businesses or work in, in different businesses. Um, so I would say that I'm probably one of the only ones that has chosen to work in the family business, although there have been a couple in the past. They just haven't chosen to pursue a long-term career uh, with the family. And it, it has posed its challenges. I don't think that it's, it's just... Uh, you know, because it's a family business. I think women in general have a lot that weighs on their shoulders, uh, you know, when they choose to pursue a career, right? They Many times uh, women are juggling the role of mother, wife, uh, somebody taking care of the house and pursuing a career at the same time, right? And so I think that that weighs heavily on, on women's shoulders and and some choose to say, I can do I can do it all, well, not I can do it all. I can try to manage all as best I can. Um, and some say, look, I, I, that's not for me, right? And so for me, I found that I was a better mother and a better wife because I worked. And so that's why I chose to pursue a, a longer term career and, and intend on on going through till, till they retire me, right? <laughs> um, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I find a lot of... Uh, satisfaction and personal fulfillment in pursuing a career. And I can't have it all. I, I've had to give up many things in my life to be able to do that. I choose to prioritize, uh, you know, my family, uh, my work and my health and everything else um, I've had to sacrifice. Right. And that's like fine. What? Those are the trade-offs you make. What are some of the things that you had to give up? So I, I don't have much of a social life. Um, I, I, I don't, I can't say I have zero. I, I'm happy with the, the level of social life. Uh, that I have at one point in time, I was giving up uh, focusing on health. So I felt guilty, especially when my children were very young, when I'd come home from work, especially when we weren't working from home, I'd come home and, and I couldn't bear to think that I would leave them for another 30 minutes to an hour to exercise. Uh, but I realized, and that's something that I probably would, if I had to go back in time, something I would have told myself to prioritize more I realized that that extra 30 minutes isn't much, right? And it's, it, it isn't much to the children, and yet it gives back so much to me as, yes, as in yes. terms of health, right? And so it was, it's an important thing to prioritize. And you actually wrote in your bio that I read early on that um, you enjoy spending time with your kids uh, because they teach you a thing or two about where the world is heading. Tell us, uh, what have you learned from them about where the world is heading? What are they teaching you? Well, they're teaching me a lot of things, primarily how to be patient, but that's not where the world is heading. I think that's a universal, <laughs> a universal truth. But, you know, I, I, I watch the children, especially now that we've been home with them and, and watching them through school. And I, I can't help but um, notice uh, how different they are growing up than I was. And they are growing up in a much more inclusive world where, you know, things are spoken up out front, uh, up front. Um, they even talk about things like uh, mindfulness at six years old. They're doing yoga. They're doing breathing exercises. And, and um, but I, I think the inclusiveness and, and making space for differences across people and leveraging, you know, and, and making the most out of those differences for me is a big takeaway about where the world is headed. I mean, I think we see it already happening, but I think this generation is the first one to be seeing it from such an early age. And so it's going to be much more easily acceptable. And I'm excited for that because, you know, here we are trying to get people to be creative, to be themselves, to not be afraid to fail. Um, but they have to unlearn a lot of things in order to do that. And our children's generation is growing up knowing how to do that from a young age. And so for me, that's going to create a lot of space for creative thinking, and, and problems getting solved much more quickly. No, I agree. And, you know, I have a similar experience with my four-year-old daughter. Every time she sees me or my wife uh, being a bit tired or upset, she just comes to us and says, breathe in, breathe out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she knows how to calm down. She knows how to get centered. 
and get uh, grounded. But um, awesome. Thank you for sharing some of these uh, very personal things about your life as well as uh, your family as well. Uh, now we are almost down to the last segment of our podcast, Anna. And that means it's time for rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, start with the first one. What's the biggest fear in your life? And uh, have you had a chance to overcome it? And if so, how did you do that? So at this point in my life, I think my biggest fear would be um, leaving my children without a mother, um, in all honesty. Um, and I don't know I, if I've overcome it completely. Um, so there's always, you know, I think especially among amidst the pandemic, there is that fear of what happens if I get sick and I don't make it, right? But I think the other fear that I think I've had for a long time that I've been able to overcome is a fear of failure. Um, so ever since I was little, I was afraid to fail. I was always somebody that had good grades, never really failed a lot. And so it was because I was afraid of it and I have overcome it. And I, I realized that, you know, I have nothing to lose by trying and failing. Um, and I have everything to gain. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a powerful, it was a powerful turning uh, point for me when I was able to realize that, that if I lose that fear of failure, I'll actually gain more. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's it. Next question is, uh, what has been your biggest mistake in life and uh, what did you learn from it? You know, I have a hard time answering this because I, I, I know this sounds like a Miss Universe or interview <laughs> question you will get. So I'm sorry to put you on the spot with that. No, um, I think, you know, I think it would be maybe when I was younger, um, the biggest mistake that I had made was, um, perhaps not speaking up enough, uh, and, 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 and kind of holding myself back and not letting my voice be heard early enough. And if I could go back in time, I would, uh, tell my younger self to be, uh, more authentic, right? Because then you, when you're not authentic, um, you've kind of go into a spiral of, okay, well, how do I now frame this? Because that's not really how I felt. And now I have to explain myself. And, uh, so I think for me, that's probably the biggest mistake I've made as a younger person. And I think the beauty of age is you learn to not really care so much anymore about what people are going to say, <laughs> and you're able to be more authentic, um, upfront. At what age did you become authentic? Uh, at what point did you say, you know what? Um, I don't care about what people say. I'm going to say my piece and, uh, let them say what they want. I think it was in my thirties. Okay. So I, I would have, I would have liked to have that awareness in my, in my twenties. How do you define success in your life? What does being successful mean to you? So for me, being successful is being able to live out what I feel my purpose is. So if, if I am able to close most days, can't be every day, but most days feeling like I'm on track with what I'm meant to do. And in my case, um, I, I feel like I am here to, to make change happen, right? Um, in whatever field I choose and today it's in banking and to make things change happen so that people can live better lives. Right. And if I can close the day feeling like I've accomplished that on most days, I feel I'm successful. I love it. How about quotes? What, uh, quotes have inspired you that you keep repeating in your own head, but also when you're talking to your team members, your clients, your stakeholders? Um, well, I think one that really inspires me, especially in my position today is one by, I cannot pronounce his name very well, but it's Antoine de Saint-Supéry. It's perfection is achieved not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. And wow, I think yeah. it applies to many aspects of life and certainly to design, right? Oftentimes we feel like, oh, I've got to put more in and, and more functionality, more bells and whistles. But truly, when you look at the best design out there, it's because they've thought about everything that they can do without, right? Um, to, to just bring it down to the core. And, and I really, in it also works for mental health, right? If you can remove um, unnecessary thoughts and strip away everything you don't have to be thinking about or shouldn't be thinking about, you'll be at your prime and leave space for what's essential to be thinking about and allow things to come through. How about books? Any, any books that uh, have played a big role in your life? Yes. Um, one particularly really helped me with uh, when I was going to become a mother for the first time. And it's called Unfinished Business by Anne-Marie Slaughter. 
she talks about her journey uh, being a, a working mother. And, and she's she actually helped me achieve a turning point as well in, in my mindset as being a working mother. She said, you can have it all, not at the same time. And uh, she talked about having to make trade-offs and how some periods in your life, you might be a great mother and other periods, you might have to sacrifice that a little bit because you're trying to move up in your career or something in your career calls for more involvement. Um, and, and just that you have to be conscious of those trade-offs that you are making and find balance. And balance does not mean having it all at the same time. It's looking at your life and having that perspective that you achieve a life balance over time, over a journey and rather than over a moment. I love it that you can have it all, but not at all at once. You know, if you are patient and wait for the right timing for every opportunity that comes along. So that's beautiful. How about uh, mentors in your life? Yes, I've had several great mentors. I think uh, the one that comes forefront in my mind is Edwin Bautista, our, our current CEO. Um, he's seen me through the time I was an art history graduate all the way through to who I am today. And he's, he's taught me a lot by his example, by his words, by his advice. And he's, he's played a big uh, role in, in shaping who I am as a banker and as a marketer and as a person today. And uh, several others. So I'm Betty Romulo, who also works with Union Bank. And she was the boss that I, she was my boss when I first had children and she's a mother as well. And so she really mentored me. She actually told me that it was not going to be easy. And she was one of the first people to reinforce how being authentic is powerful. And uh, she, she told me straight to my face, it's not going to be easy, but you can do it. So that was, that was really helpful. Uh, and so a couple of other mentors in Citibank, a gentleman by the name of Tonet Ichon, He's no longer with City, but he was a, he was again somebody that gave me, if you will, my first break outside of the family business, and he believed in me um, and gave me a you know increasing responsibility so that I could grow in Citibank, um, and I am am grateful to him for that. That's awesome. I mean, without mentors, sometimes we get lost, right? So and they play such a big role in opening the doors. And right. then we end up doing the work, but uh, if there's nobody opening the doors for us, we may not even know which door to open. So uh, it seems like you've been lucky enough to get some really good people in your life who have led you through major transitions. Well, and Anna, like, that, like, uh, please go Sorry, ahead, if I can just ahead. add one more thing. I like what you say about doors because I think they're, they open up physical doors and invisible doors, but also doors in our minds that we didn't know existed. Yes. Um, and that for That's me right. is yeah. the most powerful. No, absolutely. Thank you very much, Anna. I am uh, truly inspired by what's going on at Union Bank. I think uh, it is a role model of a company for the country, but also the world in how you guys are transforming it. And I know you are not socializing. You are spending more time with your family, on your health and at work. But I truly appreciate you taking the time to be on this podcast and sharing your story. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Malik. It's been a great way to spend the afternoon with you. Thank you very much. Hi, guys. This is Malik again. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Anna Aboitis Delgado. If you would like to listen to more of these inspiring conversations with global leaders, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when I publish the next episode. Until next time, stay healthy and stay safe.